And we come to the first chapter of Romans once again, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to assume that you've been keeping up with your reading and know uh, Romans 1 pretty well by now, if you haven't already. Now next time, I hope that we're in Romans, we will be looking at verses 18 to the end of the chapter in a survey sort of fashion, at least that's my hope, because I think we need to see how verses 18 and following hang together, especially as God gave them over as repeated three times and we see other repetitions such as the word exchanged and so forth. But tonight, verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, let's briefly pray. Father, open our minds and hearts that the word of the Lord may indwell us richly, and we pray that if there is anyone here that does not understand this text, that does not understand the gospel, that you will open the heart of that one, and by your sovereign mercy, to receive Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, this is the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul now comes to the defining point in his introduction. The very core issue in the epistle is summarized for us in these two verses, righteousness by faith. And even though we're going to analyze the text together and see what is here, the main thing that you need to get, understand, walk away understanding, is what righteousness means in this passage. Because if you don't understand that, then first and foremost, you're not going to understand the gospel, and also you're not going to understand what Paul is up to, what the main theme of the book of Romans is really all about. Now, he has spoken of his eagerness to preach the gospel, and indeed he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You'll remember last time that we pointed out that this is a figure of speech called litotes, and what this really means is understatement. What the apostle is really saying is, I am ecstatic about the gospel. I can hardly contain. He has already said in verse 15, he's eager to preach the gospel. And so he is not simply saying in some understated way, I'm unashamed. It would be understood by those who read it and should be by us that he is actually saying to us, I am thrilled about this gospel of sovereign grace that I preach. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, The gospel is foolishness to those who do not believe, but to us who do believe, it is the power of God. Whether in the synagogue or the town forum, Paul eagerly preached the gospel, knowing that it was God's power to salvation. But perhaps the first thing we need to do is, once again, define gospel. When he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, it's important that we remind ourselves what this word gospel means. The word euangelion, gospel, means good news. In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul already has said to us, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God, because there were many gospels, that term gospel Good news, euangelion, was a widespread word in the first century A.D. 
It was associated, for example, with the emperor cult. If the emperor had a birthday, it was considered gospel, good news, euangelion. If there was the the birth of a son to an emperor, then it was broadcast uh, throughout the empire as euangelion, as good news. It was an announcement of something that took place. If there was an accession to the throne, then of course, again, it would be considered euangelion, good news, to be to be proclaimed uh, throughout the Roman Empire. But of course, when Paul uses this term, not only does he recognize, of course, that it has that it has associations in his culture, but always for the Apostle Paul, there's this Old Testament background that is extremely important as well. To announce good news, especially victory, was euangelion. It was gospel. For example, in Isaiah, the 52nd chapter, verse 7, this verse with which I'm sure you're familiar, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, or the gospel of peace. Good news, euangelion. So the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament used in that passage and in others, the very word that Paul uses here in verse 16 of Romans 1, gospel, good news. When we come to the very first chapter of Mark's gospel, what do we read about the Lord Jesus? We read in Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that gospel. His life, His ministry, His death, His burial, His resurrection, all of this is the good news that is to be proclaimed. Now, what is important about this is that in every case, whether it's the accession of an emperor, whether it is what we find in Isaiah, whether it is what we find in Mark's gospel, in every case, euangelion is an announcement of news. It is an announcement of something that happened, something that took place, something that happened in history. And it is incalculably important that we understand this, because many want to define the gospel as, um, as a philosophy. There are others who want to define the gospel. Modernism would define the gospel in terms of certain moral qualities. As a matter of fact, some extreme modernists went so far as to say it didn't matter if Jesus existed or not. You could still have the Christian faith. And of course, those of you who know the life and ministry and theology of J. Gresham Machen know that this is the the pivotal point upon which his entire work turns. That something has happened in history, has happened in time and space, that we actually have something historical upon which to base our faith. Now that's very important. There could be nothing more important. That Christ came into our desperate situation to meet our desperate need. That the second person of the Trinity actually became incarnate. That he went to a cross and shed his blood in the place of sinners. That he rose, yes, really did rise bodily from the tomb. That is euangelion. That is good news. It is an account of of something that has happened, something that has taken place. And so the gospel is God's intervention into history, into life, through His death and resurrection, our Savior accomplished our redemption. That's why the Apostle Paul in verse 2 of Romans 1 goes on to define the gospel, this gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's his humiliation and his incarnation. 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's his exaltation and resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, when he says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, he actually means I am not ashamed of what God has done in time and space and history really to redeem us and to save us from our awful sins. Aren't you glad for that? That we are not simply another religion, we are not standing up here preaching a philosophy, that we are actually preaching what God did in history, that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, and that is the good news that we proclaim, our missionaries proclaim, that is to be told throughout the world. Now, the second thing we see here is that this good news comes with power. There's power in this gospel. For he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now where Paul mentions gospel, in his mind the law is lurking in the backdrop. For example, in chapter 8, verse 3 of Romans, he says, What the law was powerless to do, God did in sending His own Son. In other words, the law was powerless to save, powerless to redeem, but this gospel of God's Son is all-powerful to save us from our sin. The Apostle Paul then already has in his mind, he will unpack this as Romans goes on, because again, this is Romans, or at least its main theme, uh, in a very uh, summarized fashion. He already has in mind that we are under the law's condemnation by nature, that we are powerless, that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves or to bring ourselves into a savable state, that the gospel breaks the law's condemnation of us, that the gospel snatches us from the powers of bondage and of destruction. And so do you see, do you see why this is the message that is to be preached, that this is the message that is to be proclaimed? Uh, Do you see why it is that this message is proclaimed from this pulpit? Why we support our missionaries to go around the world? Uh, We support them to preach this message because this is the only message that can save sinners from our sins. It is the only message that can set us free. And that's why Paul is unashamed of this powerful message. Christ crucified, the power of God, and the wisdom of God as he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. Now this gospel then is powerful to save. And the most urgent need of each of us is that we be saved. That's an old-fashioned word. We don't hear it a lot, but it's constantly used in the Bible and especially used in Paul's gospel. Amazing to me, we don't talk a lot anymore about sending missionaries to preach to the lost We use other kinds of language. We use the word unchurched a lot, for example. They're going to get the unchurched, teach the unchurched. Well, people are lost. We are lost, and we need saving. William Hendrickson, I think, very beautifully sets up the negative and the positive of this in his little commentary on Romans, which, by the way, uh, Hendrickson on Romans and Hendrickson on 1 Timothy are just excellent commentaries. Um, I recommend them. Negatively, he says, to rescue men from sins, guilt, pollution, slavery, and punishment, alienation from God, the wrath of God, everlasting death. Positively, 
to bring men into a state of righteousness, holiness, freedom, blessedness, fellowship with God, love of God, everlasting life. And that about summarizes what Paul means by the salvation that is brought about by this gospel. But peculiarly, Paul, when he uses the term saved, has in mind, remember the laws in the backdrop, peculiarly, Paul has in mind salvation from wrath. Now, he will say in verse 18, if you'll look at it, we'll just mention it. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you already see the connection between verses 16 and 17 and 18, that this gospel that saves is a gospel that saves from wrath. And actually, as I recall, ten times in the book of Romans, ten times, the Apostle Paul will speak of humans in sin, under the wrath of God. If you keep your finger here and turn to 1 Thessalonians, you have an example, just one of many to which we could turn, in which the Apostle Paul speaks in beautiful terms of our salvation from wrath. When he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and uh, 10, breaking into the context... For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the Apostle Paul would have us to live in the reality of the truth that this same Christ who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, is now saving men and women and children from the wrath of God that is surely coming. Just as surely as our Savior came the first time to redeem and save, so also He will come again, as Paul tells us in another place, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. If you are here outside of Christ, even on a Sunday evening like this, you really need to understand that if you do not know Christ, you are under the condemning wrath of God. Jesus says that in John 3. Paul says this throughout Romans, and that Christ is coming again. And when He comes again, He will come in wrath upon those who are outside of Him, who do not know Him, who do not have faith in Him. Do you understand that? And may that be used of the Lord in order to show you your desperate need of this gospel about which Paul speaks in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For whom then is this gospel a saving power? Well, look at verse 16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel is the saving power to everyone who truly believes. Now, for Paul, belief doesn't mean only intellectual assent. It involves that. You need to understand something of your need, who Christ is, what He has come to do. But it means trust. It means forsaking everything that you depend upon and trusting in Christ alone for your redemption. So do not think of faith as a new law. Faith, my friends, is a grace. Totally depraved sinners cannot believe 
cannot trust by nature. It is a grace that is given to us by God himself. Faith is the, as our confession puts it, the alone instrument, the alone instrument of reception of this justification that is given to us in the gospel. And turning to chapter 4 of Romans, you'll see how the Apostle Paul will unpack this. Just to read it, say the first eight verses or so of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, but not, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, that is to say, that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Hendrickson speaks of the divinely planned historical order that we find here to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you see, the point is the same. Whether it's the Jew or whether it is the Greek, we are all saved through Christ in the same way through what he did, and receiving him in faith. The gospel then was the same to the Old and to the New Testament saint. Jews were privileged to receive it first, but now it is limited to no one nation. Now there is no distinction whatsoever. In Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, the apostle makes that plain, just to show you how much of what he says is indicated later in the book. In Romans 10, 11 and following, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you mean to say then, Pastor, that Paul the Apostle is really saying that if I call upon the name of the Lord in true saving faith, that he will save me from my sins? Yes, that is exactly what is being said by Paul the Apostle, by divine inspiration. Now, Paul will go on to demonstrate that Jew and Greek are under God's wrath. The first chapter of Romans, the Greek is under God's wrath. Chapter 2 and into chapter 3, the Jew is also under God's wrath. Whatever differences existed between them, They all disappear before the gospel. We are leveled by the law, and we are leveled by the gospel. But now I want you to see that a righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel. And you really need to understand this, because this is the most important thing in the passage that we're looking at tonight. It is absolutely essential, and I often... I often have the the sneaking suspicion, the feeling, 
if I can put it that way, that when I preach about justification and I preach about righteousness in the context of justification, that a lot of people just don't get it, that they really don't understand it, and it's very crucial. So let's try and get it. A righteousness from God is revealed. Revealed, by the way, remember in verse 18, he says the wrath of God is revealed. Well, here in verse 16 and in verse 17, he says that it is righteousness that is revealed. In other words, it's a righteousness that answers, a revealed righteousness that answers to revealed wrath. This righteousness is revealed and brought to bear upon the desperate plight of us sinners through the gospel message. Now here is how Paul shows that the gospel is God's power to save. Righteousness, the heart of the gospel. What is this righteousness? Now righteousness is used in the Bible in a number of ways. It is used, for example, of the attribute of God, His attribute of rectitude, His justice. Paul does not mean that here when he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is not God's attribute of rectitude. It is not His his characteristic of justice, but it is a righteousness that is consistent with His attribute of justice and His attribute of rectitude. Righteousness also in the Bible is used sometimes to mean a moral quality, but that is not what it means here. If you don't understand that, you'll miss the gospel altogether in its essence, and you'll miss what Paul is going to preach throughout this book. By righteousness, he does not mean a moral quality, but he means a righteousness that justifies in God's court of law. Turning to chapter 5 of Romans, just notice briefly how the Apostle Paul will use this theme of righteousness when he talks about the last Adam regaining for us what was lost by the first Adam. Romans 5, 17 and following. Notice how he references righteousness. Romans 5, 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now look at verse 18 here in chapter 5. He speaks of, as one trespass led to condemnation. Now that's legal language, isn't it? That's the language of the courtroom. We are condemned in the presence of God's justice and holiness. Righteousness then means that which answers to condemnation. For he goes on to say, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So this righteousness of which the apostle speaks is not God's attribute of righteousness, nor is it a moral quality. 
It is a righteousness that is from God, a righteousness that meets the divine standard of His justice, a righteousness that meets the perfection and demands of His law, so that everyone who believes in Him can stand before Him perfect, perfect in the righteousness that is provided, justified before His court of law. This is that of which the Apostle speaks in Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own, says Paul, based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it's absolutely essential that you be clear on this. Confuse this with the moral quality of righteousness, and you will misunderstand justification and how you are accepted with God, how you are declared righteous. This is the great difference between Roman Catholicism and consistent Protestantism, by the way, on this great issue of justification. Roman Catholicism confuses the moral quality of righteousness with this imputed righteousness of which the Apostle speaks in Romans and in other places. So this righteousness is not an infused righteousness. It is not a righteousness that is a moral quality that changes us. That happens in sanctification. It is imputed righteousness, reckoned righteousness. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21, and there I think we see something that will help to make the matter very clear. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle says, as he comes to the conclusion of his discussion of the reconciliatory work brought about by the cross, he says in verse 21 of of 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him, that is to say he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Christ became sin, that we might become righteous. So the way in which Christ became sin and the way in which we become righteous must coordinate, right? Right? All right. When Christ became sin, did he become morally a sinner? Certainly not. How did he become sin? Say it again. Yes, by taking our sin, by our sin being reckoned to him, credited to him, imputed to him. So, when he also says we become righteous in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he's not talking about the moral quality of righteousness. How did he become sin? by the imputation of our sin. How do we become righteous? By the crediting, the reckoning, the imputation of His righteousness, that is to say, His perfect record to our account. Now that's what Paul means in Romans 1, 16 and 17 when he's talking about this righteousness. It is a righteousness, these are the words of William Cunningham, I use them in my little commentary on Galatians, and I've actually gotten some, some good remarks on this, um, this little quote. 
William Cunningham spoke of the righteousness that God's righteousness requires him to require. Now that is good theology. It is the righteousness, our justifying righteousness, the righteousness required in order that we be freed from condemnation. It's not God's attribute of righteousness, but it is completely consistent with his own moral standard. It is the righteousness that God's righteousness requires him to require if I am to be saved. I hope you see the beauty of that, the wonder of it. To put it another way, my friends, the righteousness of which he speaks in this passage when he says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's the perfect record of Jesus Christ. You and I broke the law. He completely obeyed the law with absolute perfection. You and I owed a debt that was infinite because of our sin. He went to the cross and he paid that debt when he shed his blood on the cross. The righteousness of Christ constitutes the perfect record that you and I need if we are going to stand in the presence of a holy God and be received by Him. And this perfect record of Christ, this righteousness, is imputed to those who believe. That is to say, to those who believe, this perfect record is credited. Just as when I go to a bank and I say, put this money on Anna's account. Does it change Anna? Oh, later it might make her happy. (laughs) She doesn't even know about it right now, though. It's not going to change her. It's not a moral quality. It's a legal transaction. So the righteousness of Christ is put on me, declared, credited, put to my account. It's completely, completely forensic. It's a matter of a transaction in justice in God's court of law. So that doesn't mean you go check your account afterward. (laughs) You have a greater account than what I could put in your account by your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, by what he's done for you. So it's not imparted righteousness. It's not a moral quality of righteousness. It is not infused righteousness. It is imputed, credited, reckoned, counted. It is the merit of Christ that is declared now to be yours if you believe in Jesus. Whitby, one of the old theologians, says, This phrase, the righteousness of God, in St. Paul's style, doth always signify the righteousness of faith in Christ Jesus, dying or shedding his blood for us. And that's what it means. Now we have one other little phrase here we need to think about. He says in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does he mean by from faith to faith? Well, there are many views. I won't do what I did this morning and give you all of them. But there are many views. The best options, I think, interpretatively are that it springs from faith, which faith receives, Uh, John Murray uh, takes the position to accent the fact 
that not only does the righteousness of God bear savingly upon us through faith, but also that it bears savingly upon everyone who believes. Or Charles Hodge, and I tend toward this, thinks that it's just an intensifier, uh, that it's a way of saying it's entirely by faith, in which works have no part whatsoever. From faith to faith, it is altogether received by faith. And then you will notice that he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Galatians 3.11 to show that it is not by the law that a man is justified before God, but it is received by faith. And Paul read Habakkuk 2.4 in view of the gospel. Calvin on its use in Galatians uh, is applicable here. By faith, he, that is to say Habakkuk, by faith Habakkuk, simply means the quiet assurance of a conscience that relies on God alone. Therefore, Paul uses this quotation aptly. And I think he's absolutely on target. Do you have a quiet assurance of a conscience that relies on God alone? Or is your conscience troubled and are you filled with guilt? You see, apart from this righteousness received by faith, our guilt is upon us. And it is not only as if it were a lead weight attached to us and we were cast into the sea. It is as if I am completely that lead weight myself. And I will go down and down and down and down and down in the judgment. But when Christ comes and redeems and saves the sinner... He so transforms this whole idea of our acceptance that we set aside any attempt of being justified by our works as if we could be received by God by what we do. And he preaches to us and opens our hearts that we may see that you can have assurance of faith and a clean conscience and your guilt can be completely removed because your trust is in the one who paid the penalty for your sins. And that's the old message that we preach. And that's the old message that must be proclaimed until Jesus comes again. So bringing this to conclusion, Paul the Apostle says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Our day will give us more opportunity to test our hearts on this than perhaps uh, ever before. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Be delighted in the gospel. Do you understand justification? Do you understand how to be accepted by God, received into His court by this righteousness that is imputed? Do you understand that faith is the sole instrument of reception? It is by faith, Paul says, that it might be by grace. Because faith produces nothing. Faith adds nothing. Faith is simply the hand receiving the gift. Do you trust in Christ alone for your redemption? And do you see that this gospel is powerful? (laughs) If it can remove my guilt, if it can give me a heart and a conscience that is clean in the presence of a holy God, then this must be powerful indeed. I've given you this illustration before. I repeat it because I think it's helpful. A man is a wretched captive in prison. There he is, bound in chains. A wealthy man approaches him and says, I can pay for your release. 
if you'll break your chains and free yourself. Well, that doesn't reach my case. Christ is a different kind of Savior than that. He is the kind who comes and says, You guilty prisoner, I've paid the price and you're not guilty anymore. And my cross is the battering ram that breaks your prison walls. My blood snaps your chains. Be free from this law that imprisoned you and its bondage. And my friends, that's the Savior that meets my case. Does it yours? May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.